Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Welcome back to the second hour of The Interpreter Radio Show. This is Bruce Webster with Chris Fredrickson and Martin Tanner, sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation, nonprofit organization dedicated to the scriptures, doctrine, and history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, we've finished our first hour talking about John chapters 2 through 4. This hour we're going to talk, have a gospel advocacy section addressing issues uh, regarding the concept of God in the Book of Mormon versus uh, current LDS views. And we're also going to talk about the church's uh, explicit recommendation to its members that they seek out other English translations and sources of the Bible in their Bible study. Uh, Let's start with the view of the Godhead in the Book of Mormon. Uh, Martin I know you had some thoughts on this, and uh, so we'll we'll kick off with you. I'm happy to do that. Thank you, Bruce. One of the things that is often leveled against the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that the Book of Mormon was borrowed from ideas about the Bible and about God uh, and about Christianity from contemporary beliefs. This, this is the idea that, that several critics who shall remain English have. And, and one of those is that, particularly in, in Abinadi's uh, great address in the Book of Mormon, well, this isn't ancient. This is just obviously the Trinitarian concept of God. And every time I hear that, my reaction is, you either are not telling the truth, or you have no idea what the Protestant Catholic view of the Trinity really is and, and how it's defined. And you also don't grasp the fact that the description of God by Abinadi is, although theologically accurate, something quite different from the way Latter-day Saints would ever describe Jesus and God the Father. Abinadi's statement, therefore, smacks of an ancient origin. It is something that is quite different from the way Latter-day Saints would describe Jesus. If somebody were in a gospel doctrine class or in a priesthood or relief society uh, class to say, okay, what are the attributes of Jesus, or how would we describe him? Uh, You would have all kinds of lists. You, You would have Savior, Christ, Messiah, you, you would have a whole series, but Father would probably not appear on that list. But 
it is something that appears in the Book of Mormon in Abinadi's discussion. And one of the only other places in the canon of scriptures of Christianity of the LDS faith, in this case, is, is in Isaiah, where you have the Messiah, hence Jesus, according to Christians, described as the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. Oops, we just lost you, Martin. The Book of Mormon. It just oh, isn't. And, and, and it, it's just very different. One, one last comment, and then I'll let some, some uh, of, of, you know, other comments from Bruce and Chris, is, is that the Trinitarian concept of God is a very specific thing. And it doesn't just mean there are three. In, in the Godhead. And it just, and it doesn't just mean the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. For Christians who are Catholic and Protestant, it derives from the Council at Nicaea, and I've, I've got a full set of the anti-Nicene Fathers, and I've read through the Nicene Creed notes and minutes and the discussions that were had and the Trinitarian Creed has a very, very specific meaning. It's not just the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's that you have three separate persons of one undivided substance. And you don't find that in the Book of Mormon. And you don't find that in the Bible either, which is fascinating, even at the Council in Nicaea, you had a number of people who were protesting, well, we can't adopt this as our creed because it's not biblical. But they did it anyway to try to, with the best of intentions, not fractionalize Christianity and ha- have it fragmented into a number of different um, churches. But it did serve the purpose of keeping Christianity together at the time, temporarily, but it also served the function, the sad function, of having this um, this idea that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are of one undivided substance. And that's the part that Latter-day Saints object to. You could go and talk about every other aspect of the Trinity, but that particular point of one undivided substance, we, we just we just cannot accept, because frankly, it's not biblical, and it's fascinating that other Christians who say, if something's um, outside of the Bible, we can't accept it, hence we can't accept the Book of Mormon, are also ones that will accept the Trinitarian concept, which is an unbiblical concept in that sense that it has of one undivided substance at its core. And this is a good point to give a shout-out to Robert Boylan, who I wish we had on, because he would... He could actually occupy the next hour talking about the contortions that uh, various as- segments of Christianity go through to try and reconcile the Trinitarian view with the Scriptures. <laughs> Chris, your thoughts? Um, you know, um, 
I, I recently, and I just brought it back up again, but um, in 2010, Dan Peterson addressed this very question in Mormon Times, Mormons and the Holy Trinity, and he says this, Do Latter-day Saints believe in the Trinity? Virtually everybody who knows anything about Mormonism, believer or not, says no, but that answer is wrong. Although Latter-day Saints tend to avoid the term Trinity, some Mormon authorities have used it to describe their belief in a Godhead of three persons. He quotes Brigham Young, he quotes James Talmadge, um, the testimony of the three witnesses. Um, and then he says this, Dan says, the question isn't really whether Mormons use the word Trinity, nor whether they regard the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost as one. They have, and they do. The only real question is how they understand the divine unity. And so I went on to the church website. It beautifully describes and it says here, like many Christians, we believe in God the Father, um, his son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. However, we don't believe in the traditional concept of the Trinity. We believe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are three separate beings who are one in purpose. And then it goes on and it describes, you know, and, and, and we have that article of faith, um, you know, um, we believe in God, the eternal Father, and in his son Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. And, and and that's informed by the Bible. When Jesus Christ is baptized, it talks about Jesus Christ being baptized, talks about the Holy Ghost descending in the form of a dove, and it talks about God the Father speaking from heaven. So this is nothing that we're making up. But then it what it does also describe is it describes and it talks about, not in the Bible here, but our doctrine identifies the unique roles of God. God is our Heavenly Father, the Father of our spirits. We communicate with him. With him through prayer, and then we end that prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. But we're talking to God the Father, and He authored the plan of salvation. That that plan that was carried out by Jesus Christ was authored by the Father. Jesus Christ is Heavenly Father's Son. He's our Savior and Redeemer. He taught His Heavenly Father's gospel, and then of course He made the ultimate sacrifice after living a sinful life when He atoned and resurrected. And then the Holy Ghost is the messenger and revealer of the Father and the Son, a personage of spirit. He helps us learn and recognize the truth of all things, including the gospel. It is through the Holy Ghost that God and Jesus Christ communicate communicate their love, comfort, and peace to us. And then it says one purpose. Though the Godhead is made up, and this is where we, you know, Nicene Creed, you know, poof, be gone. Um, but though the Godhead is made up of three distinct divine beings, they are perfectly united in purpose. So there's where we distinguish, radically distinguish, um, you know, um, when we talk about the Trinity. Now, those who try to raise this issue and say, oh, the Book of Mormon is Trinity, they usually point to Mosiah chapter 15, which is where Abinadi is talking about the Father and the Son and, and says that you know, they are one God. He talks about uh, the Son <clears throat> dwelling in the flesh, being subject, subject to the will of the Father, being the Father and the Son. Now they try to say, well, this you know, this is Trinitarianism. Except you, you're not. We're not talking about of one substance. Uh, we're not using any of the Trinitarian beliefs, and there's none of the language here that's really the Trinitarian language that Joseph Smith would have been familiar with. He's talking about something quite different here, and it's because Abinadi likes Isaiah so much. He quotes him. He quotes him in this chapter and later on. Uh, it's 
a lot of what you see when you're reading Isaiah, you you see these readings where you have God talking, and then you're talking about the suffering servant, but then it's not clear how, you know, what is the relationship between them, and especially from the, the Latter-day Saint point of view, we are seeing the God of the Old Testament is Jehovah. So you have Jehovah talking about the suffering servant and talking about his role of the son. We have the issue that Talmud described of basically divine investiture of fatherhood. Uh, and that's, that's our belief, and that's, it's like Christ was in the role of the father. Uh, he is the father. And you have the other in uh, King Benjamin's discourse. You have the explicit fathership of Christ, of those who were born again in his name. So we have that sense in which Christ is our, in essence, adoptive father as we are born again, uh, but it is a different role in the way in which we see Elohim, God the Father, as the father of our spirits. The, uh, the Latter-day Saint view of the Godhead is frankly... A, far more nuanced, and B, far more coherent and logical, <laughs> in my opinion, uh, than the, the, the hoops that Christianity has tried to put itself through, uh, particularly since the Nicene Creed. Uh, and as, as was already pointed out, there were a lot of, lot of dissenters at the time of the Nicene Creed uh, who said, you know, again, wait a second, this isn't biblical. Uh, and you, you actually have Christian theologians who will freely admit that, no, the uh, Trinitarianism isn't biblically based. Uh, so it's, you know, to, to, to try and say, oh, oh, you know, this was, this was the environment. Joseph Smith squeezed these concepts out of the concept. What is, what is most telling, and Martin has already alluded to this, what is most telling about the theological aspects of the Book of Mormon is that they are far more tied to both early Christianity and early Judaism. Uh, you know, if you go to Margaret Barker's work, there there's some very interesting parallels between her characterization of uh, uh, pre-reformist Judaism, pre-Josiah Judaism, uh, and what you see in the Book of Mormon versus anything that Christianity or even Judaism in the uh, early 19th century would have believed. Uh, for me, that's one of the most telling evidences of the Book of Mormon is that this, this is truly an ancient document. It has far more to do with early Christianity and with early Judaism than it does with what was present at the time of Joseph Smith. Uh, Chris? Well, I was just rereading the Nicene Creed, and um, and I would encourage people to look at that. Um, look at it. Um, uh, you know, uh, one of the things is we have probably the most carefully and most in-depth articulated um, a doctrine of any church out there. I would suggest the Catholic Church might try to make a case. But our doctrine is very carefully articulated, and it's expressed in multiple books books of scripture which is really quite beautiful you know we have the bible we have the uh, we have the old and new testament we have um the book of mormon and then of course we have the doctrine and covenants which expands and builds upon the book of mormon which certainly does clarify much of what we find in the new testament and uh, but when you read the nicene creed it's 
to my mind. And, you know, if I was trying to dissect what the meaning is here, I would be completely lost. It is, you can't even begin to wrap your head around it. It's a God without body parts or passion. It's a God and a Jesus Christ that are consubstantial with one another. Um, um, through whom all things were made. But, you know, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible. I believe in one God, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. It goes on that way. It's one of those that is more confusing, I would suggest, than it is enlightening to help us understand and develop a relationship with our um, Father and with his Son. Martin. A a couple of final comments. This idea that the Trinitarian concept of God is not found in the Bible is something that... um, Catholic and Protestant scholars acknowledge. There's a wonderful book that's used in divinity schools by uh, Hubert Cunliffe-Jones called The History of Christian Doctrines, and there's another one with a a similar title, the exact title of which escapes me, by J.N.D. Kelly. And both of them are Protestant scholars, and they both say, when you get to this idea of the Trinity, that it's just not found in in the Bible. Um, most people who want to try to find it in the Bible will go to First John chapter 5, verse 7, where it talks about three in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. The problem with using that verse as a proof for the Trinity or justification for the Trinity is, first of all, it doesn't say <laughs> what one is, if it's one in substance or one in purpose, and and uh, so, so there's some ambiguity there. But even if it did allude to substance, which it does not, that is not a genuine scripture of the Bible. 1 John 5-7 doesn't appear in the manuscripts until late in the 3rd century, and you can trace and find out how it shows up at first shows up as a margin note. One of the scribes was writing something in the margin, and then the next scribe thought, oh, well, he must have left it out. And so the next scribe came along and included it as an actual verse. And so you can trace that back. There are no early manuscripts from the first, second, or third centuries that have First John 5-7 as an actual Bible verse. And with that, uh, back to you. <laughs> 